Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions. Welcome to Bigger Pockets Money, show number two. It's time for a new American dream, one that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. My name is Mindy Jensen, and I am hosting today's show. We have something a little bit different today. Today's guest is usually on this side of the microphone with me, but today I'm putting him in the hot seat. I want you to get to know him, and there's no better way to get to know someone 
than to interrogate them. So I'm going to bring in Scott Trench, the director of operations at biggerpockets.com and usually my co-host, but today he is my guest. Scott, welcome to the show. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mindy. And yeah, I'm excited to be here. You know, we're going to be posting the show for Ever. forever. <laughs> and so I thought it would be good. I, you know, I, th- I think we thought it would be good to have each of us, you're going to be next week, share just kind of our philosophy and our story and how we approach money so that you guys, the listeners can understand where we're coming from when we're talking about money and finances and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Lend a little credibility to the show, if you will. So I'm just going to jump in with both feet and, and start at the beginning. Tell me about your childhood. I'm just kidding. Um, how... <laughs> Well, you know what? Tell me about well, your childhood. Well, I was born in a, yeah. <laughs> born yeah. in a small town. Um, so what kind of childhood did you have? Like a regular rough and tumble childhood. You were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You had no money and you were homeless forever. What's your, what's your quick background? So I, I grew up in an upper middle class neighborhood and went to, you know, excellent school. Like I was in an excellent school district throughout my entire life growing up, I had two wonderful parents. And my, if I were to def- kind of dis- define my childhood, it would be defined by competitive sports because <laughs> I was lucky enough to have parents that were able to provide for all these things. You know, it was basically, you know, I can't remember a time between the age of maybe five and 18 where I had more than two weeks off from playing various sports. I was always in a soccer league, a basketball league, lacrosse, rugby, you name it. I, I played sports my entire life. And that's really how I kind of defined myself as a child. I was a, an athlete and a competitor. So, so, gosh, Scott, do you still play sports now? Yes, I still play sports. I played <laughs> I played rugby in college and I still play rugby to this day, although I'm continuing to, to rack up some injuries from rugby. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm laughing. People may not be aware of this. I'm laughing because Scott comes into the office frequently with a black eye and just as frequently with stitches. So he's actually bruise free right now. Well, his face anyway is bruise free right now. So it's, it's just funny to see somebody in a professional setting with this black eye and he, he gets it from rugby, not fights or, or are you calling it rugby, but it's actually fight club. Eh, who cares? Oh, rule number one. Okay. So you had a happy childhood. It wasn't filled with a lot of strife. No, name. no. So I, yeah. And I, 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 again, I had, uh, I had a great, I had the great privilege of being able to really just kind of focus on my athletics and my academics without too many uh, drama, you know, things going on in my personal life to distract me from, you know, being successful in those things. And I'm very grateful to my parents for that. That's an advantage that a lot of people don't have. And, you know, I tried, I've tried to do the best I can given that advantage. I went to college at Vanderbilt University and then uh, studied finance and economics and then got my first job in the finance world out of there, uh, graduating debt-free. I had that, that nice head start into the world right there. That That is, uh, that is a huge head start. Okay. I think, I think how you grow up is really important. It doesn't, define you. And we'll have a guest on in a few weeks who took a not so amazing childhood and really turned it into something amazing. So I don't think it has to define you, but it's definitely interesting on how it affects the rest of your life. So fast forward, how did you discover this concept of early retirement or financial freedom? Because you went to school, you studied, presumably you went to college to get a four-year degree so that you could go out and, you know, be whatever for the rest of your life and work until you're 65. And, you know, then you said your very first job was not so fabulous. Well, to back, you know, in, in college, 
probably towards the end of my senior year, I became very interested in finance. And I began reading some things like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and that kind of stuff. So I understood the concept of building wealth, but I didn't really, it didn't really click. I think it has to, I think you have to kind of absorb this information or this perspective over the course of months or years before it becomes, oh, for some reason, this one is going to hit me at this time and things are going to become crystal clear and financial freedom is going to become the obvious concept. So out of college, I actually went and spent all the money I'd been making at internships and whatnot for the summers on a trip to Europe with a couple of buddies so I could start just to make sure that I could start my <laughs> career broke. Um, and so I started out, you know, with two or three grand in my checking account and my first job here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and within three months, I figured out, hey, life has just hit really hard. I am now on my own with, you know, a, a solid job. I was making 48K a year. But this is it. This is what I'm going to be doing with my day to day for the rest of my life. And did and, you enjoy that? And you no, were doing? I didn't. I didn't. Okay. And, I, and I don't think the reason I didn't enjoy it was because the work was bad or I was treated poorly. But, you know, if you go back to my childhood, you know, every single day, every single week for my entire life, I've been competing. I've been practicing or straining myself to the utmost with some sort of challenge that's going to, that's going to, something that's going to challenge me to the utmost mentally and physically. And my work was not doing that uh, okay. at the time. And so, but I'm not one to waste time. So I'm not going to sit there and because I don't have any work, just allow myself to sit around and, and twiddle my thumbs. I spent as much as I, as much time as I could reading and learning and figuring out how do I become a better and better and better and better at my job with every p possible moment. And I soon found that there was very little marginal utility to that. You know, once you know, the, the job is, <laughs> hey, make the spreadsheet, come up with the projections, here's how to do it, and then update that once a month and give us your feedback. I was a financial analyst that would basically, how much, how much do we think we're going to spend? How much do we spend? What do we need to make any changes? What's the difference? And so there wasn't really that much to it. You can only get so good at that particular role over time. So once I figured that out, I just started learning more and more about finance in general. And that is when I came across the concept of financial freedom is in studying to become better for my job, learning how, you know, learning more about finance. I discovered the realm of personal finance and really dived in. And particularly, I remember that two of the key resources were the um, Mad Scientist podcast. I think it's called the Financial Independence Podcast. And one. his first ever guest was a guy named Mr. Money Mustache. Uh, who you might remember from last week. Yes. And once I discovered Mr. Money Mustache and began reading his blog, everything clicked. I just agreed with every single piece of information that I absorbed on Mr. Money Mustache. And from there, it was off to the races. And how old were you? So I was 23 at the time when I first started doing this. Probably maybe just turned, was that 2013? Yes, yeah, so I was 22, 23. Okay. So 23, you discover the concept of financial freedom and early retirement. What was your next step after you decided, okay, this is something I want to do. What, what did you do after you've decided, okay, I want to retire early? So once I, once I decided that I said, Hey, you know, I need to just focus on saving. And I realized that saving was not going to be a, you know, something I could just do immediately. I wasn't going to be able to suddenly start saving thousands of dollars a month. I actually had to change things step by step. Now I had the good fortune of not making too many big mistakes prior to discovering financial freedom. You know, if, if I discovered it a year or two later, I might've been locked into some choices that would be much harder to, to erase. But you know, the big things that I did in those first few months before I got serious about financial freedom was I bought a car. I bought a brand new to at the, at the time, 2014 Toyota Corolla and financed it. And that was probably my biggest financial mistake, which I'm lucky to say that's my biggest financial mistake because 
it's an, it's a Corolla, you know? It's yeah. Not, it's but, a nice, it's a nice mistake to make. But what I should have done is I probably should have waited another couple of months and taken public transit and then bought in cash just a, a 2004 Corolla, a 10 year old or model. And I'd probably be doing a little better today. That so that was one decision. And the second one that I'd made that was really, that, that really helped me move forward was I lived in an apartment with a roommate, actually my college roommate and just continuing to live with a roommate in an apartment, you know, I was able to spend like $550 per month, maybe, maybe $600 per month with utilities to live. And so that, you know, by doing that, having an economy car, the Corolla and, you know, beginning to make lunches, I was able to start saving initially. And then over time I was able to make changes that even that accelerated my savings rate to about a 50% rate. So what kind of changes did you make in your life to be able to change, to save 50%? That's a, that's a nice savings rate. Yeah. So it took me, it took me a year to get up to that rate. And what I did was I, I started off by learning how to cook. Sounds simple, but for a 22, 23 year old guy who's, you know, never really cooked before, that was a challenge. <laughs> I had to buy pots and pans. I had to go, I'd use this, a website called ladiescrockpot.com or something like that. And so, you know, I, I eat a lot of a rugby player, you know, so I'm a little larger and, and, you know, I like to consider myself an athlete. So I would make meal family meals and eat them all myself yes. or, or maybe have a little bit for lunch the next day. And so that was, that was the first thing I did. And by just by doing that, I think I saved a ton of money. Again, the fact that I had made the decision out of, out the gate to pay five fifty a month for my housing enabled me to, to come up big there. So I think it was, I'll have to look, look back at the numbers specifically uh, at some point, but I think let's call it 600 bucks a month for housing and utilities. Let's call it 350 to 400 for food. And then another 300 to 400 for car, for the car payments, insurance and all that stuff. You know, I'm looking at 12 to $1,300 a month in expenses. And then I have $700 that I'm blowing on fun, you know, drinking, drinking beer, having friends over, you know, going downtown, that kind of stuff. And that was plenty of money to do that. Maybe the occasional, the ski pass would come in there and you average that out over the winter months, but I didn't take very many trips. I avoided, you know, a bunch of my friends from college went on a trip to, I think it was Cancun or, or one of the, one of the Bahamas. And I remember being like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm serious about financial freedom. I'll, I'll spend 20 bucks on a case of beer to go downtown with my friends, but I'm not going to spend a thousand dollars to go to, you know, a, a, an Island resort. And just by kind of consciously making those decisions, avoiding big, big expenses and still having fun with a few hundred bucks a month, I was definitely able, to, I was bringing home around three, 3,500 to 4,000 in after-tax pay. And so that was how I did it. So what did you do with your money that you were saving? So, you know, I, I basically, after I had about two to $3,000 in my savings account, I put everything else in index funds. And so this is where a lot of people get a little antsy because they're like, oh, you're not supposed to put your reserves, the cash you're accumulating into investments. Otherwise you might lose them and they might go down. You should have done Bitcoin. That's a yeah. way better investment. Oh, I would be, I would be way richer now <laughs> if I if I'd done Bitcoin. That's for sure. Uh, I'm going to jump but, in right here and just say we're currently recording this at the end of December, and I think Bitcoin crashed today. It went down 25 percent or something, and there's kind of a whole big spiel about how. Not, are you? You're not a fan of Bitcoin, are you? Uh, I I do not believe that. I I believe Bitcoin is a currency. So okay. if you want to call currency speculation investing, you can. 
I'm not here to discredit people who have made money from it, but I think I certainly I'm not touching it myself. I don't I don't believe that Bitcoin is an investment that can reliably be expected to appreciate in value or generate cash flows. And that's my criteria for investment. Okay. I concur and I don't want to make this a Bitcoin a podcast. So we're going to skip over that. I just think that's funny. So people, I would not recommend putting your money into Bitcoin while you're waiting for your investment. Okay. So my question was, where did you put your money while you were waiting? Did you know you wanted to buy real estate? Actually, actually, that's not true. Let me, let me go back into this and really di- dissect what I did in that first year more carefully. Cause it's been a, it's been a couple of years since I thought about this. Okay. What I did actually is I stockpiled that money in cash at the very beginning because my employer offered an employee stock purchase plan. So I could oh. buy the stock of the company at 15% off. This is what I did. So I, I, I put that money in my bank account and I was like, shoot, you know, next quarter I'm going to take zero paycheck. I literally had paychecks of less than a hundred dollars for that, for that <laughs> quarter, because I put all of my money into the employee stock purchase plan. And the way it worked is I could, you know, you, you know, paycheck goes in there. And at the end of the quarter, uh, let's, you know, let's call it 14 days after the end of the quarter, they buy company stock and then they sell it. And then you can, you can sell it once you, once you own it at that same day. So I was basically arbitraging a 15% discount. So I think I put in like 5,000, $300 or something like that into the employee stock purchase plan. And then I immediately sold it for like a $6,000, like 6,100. I forget exactly what the numbers were, but like something like that and made my 15% return. And instantly. I was like, that's yeah, a guaranteed 15% yeah. return. Okay. So that, was the, that's- that was the first thing I did with my, with my savings was I put myself in position to do that. And then, you know, that quarter kind of sucked because I didn't have, you know, I was running low. I was like waiting for the, the ESPP to come through, you know, it was, it was still, I just bought the car. So I was still kind of low on cash at that point, <laughs> but then I got that huge boost. I had six grand. I was like, Oh, I could last for years now. Exactly. And so that's, yeah. That small tweak. That was it. You're right. That small tweak, that, that little thing allowed me to make a little, a, a lot of extra money. It got me used to, you know, being very careful with the money in that first quarter. And then I, uh, of course I applied it again the next quarter, but then I had a big chunk to invest. And so I had, I put some of that money into investments in the stock market and then kept a, a reserve that I had dwindled again the following quarter. And then of course, <gasps> that, and this is in 2014. So of course, by the end of the second quarter, I was looking for another job and got one at bigger pockets. <laughs> so so yeah, I had, so, I had, and, and, and so by, by the time I got through one full year of employment in September of 2014, between the ESPP, some side gigs, my savings rate and all that, I had accumulated roughly about $24,000 in cash. While making at your salary, 48,000. Yes. But remember, I was able to increase that because of the, because I was using the, doing the ESPP and I did a couple of side gigs. And ESPP is Employee Stock Purchase Plan. Yes. Okay. I just want to clarify for everybody who might have skipped over that. I skipped over that the first time you said that. Um, Okay. So you have some money in stocks and some money in company stocks and then no money in company stocks because you sold it all. Did you know that you were going to invest in real estate or were you just saving at a high rate? You had mentioned Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is the number one real estate inspiration book. That's everybody's favorite book on the Bigger Pockets podcast. Did you know that real estate was your goal? Yes. So, um, you know, I had told you that Mr. Money Mustache was my, was the big thing. And I really kind of got into him in December and January of December 2013, January, 2014. But, you know, after reading that for a little bit, one of the things that, that Mr. Money Mustache and a lot of the guys in the personal finance space talk a lot about is index fund investing. 
And I think index fund investing is great. I'm a big fan of it. You just to, I just told you I invest in index funds with a lot of my excess cash. However, what I what I kind of what I boil it down, I was like, what is really killing my ability to save money at a high rate? What is really the the thing that is over that is the, that is holding me back right now? Well, it's it's this rent. You know, no matter what I do, I six hundred dollars is not a lot of money for a, a place like Denver to rent a room. No, that's nothing. If you could find a six hundred dollar a month apartment now, get it. But it's by <laughs> far the biggest part of my expense. It, right. it was by far the biggest part of my expenses, and I was like. I got to eliminate this if I want to, if I want to do this, how do I do this? And that's where I kind of turned to real estate investing. You know, I think I discovered a, an article by Brandon Turner that was how to hack your housing and get paid to live for free. I think he published that in 2013 or, 2000, or early 2014. That's and a that great was the moment. Article. Yeah. That was the moment I knew that I was going to get into real estate and real estate is a side effect. I invest in real estate because I looked at real estate as, as, a, as a way to eliminate my housing expense. But I knew going into that first house hack that I didn't want to be in that duplex or in that part of town or in an area or an investment property that would be a good house hack permanently. I knew it was a stepping stone to something else. So by definition, if you're going to use a house hack to eliminate your rent, your expenses, and then intend to keep it as an asset, you're going to be a real estate investor. <laughs> and real estate investing makes a lot of sense in a lot of other ways. So my goal was never to become a full-time real estate investor, and it still is not to become a full-time real estate investor. My goal is to eliminate my housing expense and acquire stable cash flowing assets one at a time over the years in a way that would help me accelerate rapidly towards financial freedom. Oh, I didn't know that you didn't want to be a full-time real estate investor. No, I, I even say this sometimes. I don't even like real estate. I talk about real estate all the time and I love talking about it. I love doing that. But if you told me, hey, here's a better way to create equity, to build wealth and to generate cash flow with your money, I'm out. I'll go, I'll go do that one. Okay, real I don't estate, want to talk to you anymore. I like the income that real estate produces and the equity it builds, not the physical structure itself. If I can make that much money without having to deal with tenants and repair toilets and all that, I'm, I'm all in. You tell me. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I did not know that about you. I've been working with you for like two and a half years. I didn't know that. I thought you loved real estate. I love real estate. I love the structure. I love the concept. I love, you know, all of that, but that's interesting. And I was just thinking, it's kind of hard to interview somebody when you basically know the answers. So this is, this is great. We can go <laughs> on this tangent. So you discovered real estate. How did you discover bigger pockets? Well, bigger, I mean, bigger pockets is was already at the time, you know, the, they'll go to resource for real estate investing online. It was impossible to avoid. And, you know, <laughs> after, after you read, let's say you, know, you read Mr. Money Mustache or you read any of the, any of these bloggers that are there and, and they, any of these guys who have their whole philosophy put on paper, put on, and I guess it's not paper, uh, in the internet, <laughs> you know, you read all these posts, the, the outline becomes pretty clear. You save your money, you invest in index funds, you try to find ways to to make marginal differences each month and you accelerate and accelerate and accelerate in perpetuity. Real estate is a little different. Real estate is where you could, where you can really put in a serious amount of education and reap benefits from that education. You know, there's, it's not like, it's not like, Hey, I'm just going to, you know, here's the practical way to decrease my lifestyle expenses and then invest in index funds, right? Real estate, you can learn every bit about how to analyze deals, which neighborhoods in your market are there, which people in your market are good, how much, you know, there's, there's, you could spend a lifetime learning how to DIY, do DIY construction projects. You could spend a lifetime yes, learning can. how to, you know, learning ins and outs of various tenant law in, in various parts of the country, 
You know, there's just so much to learn. And so putting in that excess education, I believe, gives you a shot at earning outsized returns in real estate in a way it might not in other asset classes. So I became obsessed with the Bigger Pockets podcast. I must have listened to all, at the time, 100 or so episodes that were out. Now there's 250. But, you know, I listened to all of them and began to feel increasingly confident by the time the end of 2014 came around and I made my first investment. Okay. You just threw a lot of stuff at us again. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I like real estate for the same, but different reasons. I like, you had said that you can do uh, research and get a competitive advantage. I like real estate because I'm in control. I am not in control of Enron, the company. So when they go and do whatever monkey business they did that caused the whole company to crash, I have no control over that. I can't tell them to stop. I can't, you know, do any of that. So my preferred method of real of investing is real estate. And I will talk next week about mine, but I love the control that it gives me. I'm kind of a control freak. So you mentioned an article by Brandon Turner called House Hacking, how to hack your life. And what was it called? How, hack how to your hack housing? your housing, you get paid to live for free. Okay. I'll never forget so, it. So let's talk about house hacking. For people who don't know what this means, tell me what this means. So house hacking is, you know, I, again, I stated my goal was to live for free. The, the way that you can do that with house hacking is, I'll explain the concept of house hacking with my first duplex, right? So if you're following the story so far, I had just quit my job at the Fortune 500 company and moved to a job at Bigger Pockets. My role was still technically finance, so I was able to use my base income to help me qualify for a mortgage. And so I bought my first duplex in November of 2014, shortly after I joined Bigger Pockets. And by the way, I did not really get any benefit of working at Bigger Pockets when I bought that duplex because I, I just I met someone on Bigger Pockets before I even joined the company. I just as a regular user, and that person brought the deal to me and uh, and all that. So this is not like I had some super secret advantage here in buying my first property. It was this was all done external to Bigger Pockets. My latest deal, I did get some advantage, but I'll, I'll get into that later. Um, so but my big thing is what's re- what's realistically repeatable for people and what's not is is what I want always want to try to convey. So anyways, I, I get this 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 duplex and it's a two hundred and forty thousand dollar duplex and it's a foreclosure. So it's been, it's owned by Fannie Mae and being sold through a bank. Okay. Were there anybody, was, was anybody living in it at the time? No, it was completely vacant. So this is an ideal first property for me for a number of reasons. One, it was in an area of town that I had, I had been networking with investors throughout town for months previously trying to get a feel. And I joined a mastermind group with these, uh, uh, kind of other real estate entrepreneurs, some of them who had, were just getting started like me and some of whom had pretty reasonable businesses going, even big businesses. Uh, and I, and they had told me this is a good area of town. So I, I knew I, going in, I knew what numbers kind of made sense for various properties and what part of town I wanted to be in. And when this property hit the market, I knew it was, I knew it was something I should go look at, or at least when it came to me from this agent, I knew it was something I should go look at. So I go and take a tour and I'm not sure whether I want to buy it yet. I'm, I'm kind of having that analysis paralysis. I'm kind of, you know, scared, and so, but the, but the reason I was able to get it is because for 30 days, it was only available to owner occupant, uh, you know, only owner occupants were allowed to put bids on the property. And I have that house too. Was it a, did you say Fannie Mae home path? Yep. So exactly. Yeah. So this was great. I definitely, if there are foreclosures, which there haven't been in Denver for some time, you know, at least not very many, the, the Fannie Mae HomePath program can be a pretty good place to look if you're a house hacker because this was a duplex. So most owner occupants, you know, house hacking wasn't a thing. 
it's been around forever, but it wasn't like something that was very popular. So I was the only person in the city that offered on this property, even though it was a pretty good deal. And a lot of the investors I talked to said, yes, if that market property comes on the market, I'm going to offer at that price. And so I had it all to myself for that first offer. Nobody else was, 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 was able, no investor was able to offer on it. And all of the homeowners were interested in single families. So that's right. how I was able to kind of have that little, a couple of days to really get my offer through without having to face a lot of competition. So great opportunity for me to get into that first property. I think it's important to note that Fannie Mae is a government program that wants to put owner occupants in the homes. They don't, they will sell to investors, but they don't want to, they want to put regular people in homes. So for the first 30 days, they have this window where only owner occupants can bid on it. And then after 30 days, it's opened up to everybody if it hasn't gone under contract yet. And then I believe there's an investor premium of $10,000 or something like that, where if you buy it as you have to state that you're going to live in it or not live in it. And if you're not going to live in it, you have to pay an extra $10,000, I guess, for the privilege of buying it. Um, huh. I did not, I did not know that last part, but I think that first part was exactly right. And, and so a, a part of the deal was, Hey, you know, you're buying this property. You have to live in it for a year. You have least. to live in it for a year. And this is something that comes up on the bigger pockets forums frequently. It is mortgage fraud, which is a felony to say you're going to live in the property and then not actually live in the property. You have yes. to claim this as your primary residence. You have to live there. And people will ask, oh, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to drive by? Yeah, they might. It's, is well, it worth five years in jail to get a property? No, it's not worth five yeah, years. This in jail. is a cheat code to life. It's a, it's a, it's a, a way to, to vastly expedite your financial position. You put down 5% on a Fannie Mae loan as an owner occupant. And I got a, I got a good deal on the property, you know, three and a half percent, you can put down even less and you get to have this enormous loan and ability to wipe out your housing expense, you know, with, with the, with a principal, you know, a, a mortgage interest premium, but that advantage is pretty great. And the only trade-off is one year of living in the property. That's a, that's a trade-off I'm willing to accept. That's like signing a lease. And the other thing is, while you're right, it's mortgage fraud. You know, this is not like you're condemning yourself to be in there for the whole year and you have no flexibility whatsoever. You know, if your mom gets sick or you get a new job or you got it or something else comes up, that's a legitimate emergency, you can move. Yeah. Away. They have reasons. They have uh, a couple of exceptions to their rule. But yeah, you do need, uh, it's to keep people from jumping in during the owner occupancy yeah. or owner occupant period. So if your intention is to defraud the system. You're, you know, you're, you're not doing it right. No. So. And I hope you get caught because you should just be honest in the way you deal with your life. So, okay. So quick, in case somebody's listening and doesn't know what a duplex is, what is a duplex? Oh, it's just two, a two unit building. So it's a house with living space. It's like a town home. Like yeah. two completely different spaces, but just stuck together. Yeah. With the same, with, with, usually with a shared wall. So this, this property was a side-by-side -side duplex. So instead of, as opposed to an up-down duplex, a lot of duplexes are converted homes that have a basement living area and an upstairs living area. Uh, this was a side-by-side. -side. Each side was about 700 square feet. It needed some work, but not work that, uh, uh, a first time guy getting into this couldn't handle. It was like painting drywall, installing a vanity, caulking, you know, staining cabinets, that kind of stuff. And so I bought the place for $240,000. I brought $12,000 in cash and I probably put another eight grand into it over the course of a few months. And then after that, I was able to install a set of tenants in there for that were paying 1150 a month. And my roommate paid me 550 a month. 
So if you're following the numbers, that's $1,700 per month in gross rent, and the mortgage was about $1,550. Now, there's expenses oh. that come up and, and maintenance, but I'm, you know, I'm basically eking out a free existence <laughs> at that point. And that's great. That's a huge, you know, I was paying $600 a month before that's, you know, that that's what 60, $7,200 per year. That's almost like a, a, a 55 or 60% return in just rent savings alone on my down payment. You know, wow. if you call it, it's, it's a, it's a what 35% return on that, uh, on a 20, $20,000 in total of cash that I put in. So it was a great, great return. And that's just on the, the rent reduction. That's not well, even including the appreciation and and you're learning how to be a landlord without having like a 500 unit building. Yep. That's why, that's why house hacking, which I think is a, is a cheat code that many people should consider if they're trying to achieve financial freedom, just logically kind of moves you into that space of where real estate investing is not very scary and, and can be approached with a lot more comfort. It's a, it's like training wheels for real estate investing. So you said your mortgage payment was 1500 1550 about. Yeah. Okay. So that's principal interest, taxes, insurance, and the mortgage insurance premium. Okay. So you could afford that comfortably on your salary if neither side was rented out and you were just the only person living in this whole building. Oh, oh yeah. So I, you know, this is, this is just fundamental to my philosophy in life and investing is, you know, my investments should always, always be something that can help me you know, increase my, you know, that will help me accelerate and improve my financial position, but they're never something that I should depend on solely. I should never depend solely on a single investment to determine my financial future. It's always going to be incrementally additive. So yes, I was not dependent on this investment working out in order to sustain my lifestyle and make that mortgage payment. Okay. And I think that's really important. It's, it's not a good idea in my opinion to buy a house that you can't really afford. Even when the lender says, oh, you can afford $5,000 a month in your payment. You're like, well, I'm really more comfortable with 1500. Don't buy the house. That's $5,000. Cause you're, you know, if you're planning on renting portions out and then for some reason you can't, your bank still wants that mortgage payment every month on the first. So uh, I think that's really important that you could afford this on your own and then you didn't have to. So now you're saving $600 a month in rent. You're just going out and partying every night. What are you doing with that money? I'm continuing to do live my life in exactly the same manner as I had lived before, going out on the weekends, going skiing, having all the, all the, uh, the same stuff. In fact, I probably relaxed my spending just a little bit, you know, just a, maybe had a little bit more fun. Although I did... I, I did remember, you know, I, I, I got really serious. I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to live this perfect life. I'm going to bike. I'm going to have the, I, I didn't have a dryer. So I just had a washer. I hung dry my clothes outside, that kind of <laughs> stuff. So, but I really just had fun on the weekends, went to the mountains to ski, played rugby, did exactly what I, what I wanted to do that whole time. I just happened to no longer be paying rent. And that was the, the big thing. I will point out that I, this house hack also, the reason I chose this area was because I thought it would appreciate, but also because it was within an easy bike ride of work, which is another thing that allowed me to save a lot of money. Oh, like, so. uh, like Pete talked about last week with living closer to work. So you don't have to have a car and insurance and gas and yada, yada, yada. And there's um, two ways to be able to bike, right? You have to, you can move your home closer to work or you can move your work closer to home. And I did both. So part of the reason, really part of the reason why I chose to work at bigger pockets besides from the fact that I was a fan and, and loved it and thought it was a good opportunity was because it was within biking distance of my first apartment. And part of the reason <laughs> I chose this house hack was because it was within biking distance of my new job at bigger pockets. And that was definitely all intentional. So with my day to day life, my commute and my living, I'm not spending, I'm, I'm spending hardly anything. 
I'm saving tons of money. And that was, that's the point at which my acceleration began to take off. We know you've heard it before. Cash flow is getting very hard to find. There's always long distance investing, but you may be thinking, I don't have a team, enough experience, or the market knowledge to get in. That's where you're wrong. And it's also where Rent to Retirement comes in. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest out of state with confidence. They've got single family, multifamily, new build, and syndication opportunities across multiple markets. They even have bird deals with immediate equity. Rent to Retirement helps investors learn how to build a bulletproof business plan with the best investment and tax strategies around to help you reach financial freedom through real estate. There's no excuse not to get started in real estate investing when you have the right team and systems already in place. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. 
Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. So So what were you doing with your money after you've got the duplex and now you're living for free? You are saving money on your rent. What are you doing with that money? Sure. So that 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 the du- the, the duplex purchase took pretty much the majority of my cash over those first few months. Cause remember I was, I, I put in 20 grand into 12 down, probably another eight into it. And then I'm paying the mortgage without much rent help. So I'm pretty low on cash, maybe like down to like five or 10 grand at the point where I get my first set of tenants. So that first year, 2000, let's call it 2015 was really spent. I just conti- I allowed my rent to stockpile in a reserve account. And I built that out to about 20 grand before I started taking, uh, you know, I, I just built up that reserve with my savings over that, uh, before I started really thinking about investing elsewhere. I don't think that reserve was as necessary for my personal life, but once you have an investment property, you had, you're now running a business and a business needs capital and cash and cash in it to make sure that it survives the, any problems. Right. What if you get this like Murphy's law kind of perfect storm thing going on and you have, uh, problems with your water heater and problems with your plumbing and problems with your electrical and problems with your furnace and problems with your roof. And you can't afford all that if you have no money. Yep. So my, my, my goal in life that year was basically how do I, I'm going to work hard at my job, keep my spent expenses low, still have fun, but I'm going to put, build that up to that uh, 20 grand in my emergency reserve. And then I had some, a little bit of extra cash, you know, after, after I got back up there, I began putting my money back into my Scott trade account and investing in index funds. So I think I have like three, yeah, of course. My name is Scott. (laughs) So I I had like three to five in personal cash, 20 for my business. And then I began building up my next, my next reserve there. Okay. So I know that you have more than one property. When did you start looking for your next property? How long did it take you to find? And when did you move out? You did fulfill that one year of owner occupancy requirement, correct? Yeah. So the next property was purchased in March or April of 2016. So almost 15 months later. Okay. And if I closed the property in November, 2014. And so that one was an up-down duplex. Probably wasn't the best deal. I got it on the MLS but it's a nice place to live. I, it's an up down duplex. I live in the basement. It's got a, it's in a really good spot that is pretty speculative. And so that place overlooks a light rail station that goes to downtown. It's got also got a bike trail, which I often use to get to work. And it's got a nice garage for a man cave. I can throw events there with my rugby buddies <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. We play ping pong in the garage uh, and and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's just a great kind of lifestyle investment. And the upstairs pays, I think, fifteen seventy five on a two thousand dollar mortgage. So doing pretty good there. But it's not the cash. It's not quite as good as investment as that first property was. So I think that it'll probably when I move out rent for like. $1,200 in the basement, $1,500 upstairs, and the mortgage is about two grand. So not 
quite, you know, I'll probably break even on a cash flow basis on this property after all the expenses are accounted for, as opposed to my other property, which now produces about $2,600 a month in rents on a $1,400 mortgage. So I'm, uh, so that's, so that's, that's the difference there. Those are uh, nice and then the, la- the most recent property was actually a fourplex. Uh, and me and a partner each brought about 50K, 45K to, for the down payment. We put down a 90K and bought this $355,000 quadplex. The quadplex rents for about $3,200 a month or did at the time we purchased it. And the mortgage was about $1,700 per month. So oh, I wow. can go into the rest of the numbers there. But yeah, we got a good deal there. What we did is though, is we bought a property that had some problems. So there's a, there's a tenant being evicted at the time. There's a guy living in the crawl space. There was a murder on the property a few months before we bought it. Ooh. This guy was selling because he had problems with his tenants. And we have a problem tenant. I do not believe anybody's gang related that's currently living in the property. Um, like the, like, like I believe the murder was gang related and those tenants are out. Um, but okay. the, you know, we, we, we are having some issues and that is part of the process of getting a good deal. I'm, you know, now I'm, now I think I'm a real estate investor or at least a fledgling real estate <laughs> investor, as opposed to a house hacker who's kind of cheating to acquire properties. You know, now I'm buying deals that have value add that I need and I need to come into the table, solve problems. And I will solve these problems and make sure that property is stable and not taking up any of my time. And if in it, over the course of the next year, as we, as leases renew and all that kind of stuff comes up. Okay. First of all, it's not cheating to house hack. Don't say that. Yeah. I love, I love calling it cheating. It's a cheat code. (laughs) You're cheating expenses, but you're not cheating as a real estate investor. I mean, like, let's let's, suppose you make 50 K a year, right? You know, if you, if you, if you house hack and you're able to wipe out your living expense, even at my level, 6,000, $600 a month, that's $7,200 in saved rent per year, right? That's probably eight, what what am I, 20%, maybe 10, 15 to 20% of your after-tax take-home pay. You're going to get a 30% raise in order to cover that same level of expense. No way. That's, that's unrealistic for your, your average median income earner, you know, and then, and then you're adding in a, your, if you're working on the property and improving it, you can increase your equity. You're paying down the mortgage, which is another couple grand, you know, this it's a cheat code. There's, there's no other way to describe it. It's, you know, you have to start a business that would produce tens, $10,000 or more per year in your free time to even come close to to the benefits of house hacking. It's, you know, it's, it, there's, there's really no way to make up for the advantage without some sort of Herculean effort on the income front. (laughs) (laughs) That is a really good way to look at it. And I want to say, I want to point out that you had said that now you own a business. Now that you're a landlord, you own a business and you really do have to treat this like a business, but think about starting your own business. What do you need to do? You need to come up with like a billion things. You need to have a product or a service. You need to, you know, starting a business is really, really hard. So, or you could just- Starting a business is easy. Generating revenue is really hard. (laughs) Okay. Well, yeah, you can just say, oh, I've got a business now. And then, yeah. I started a lot of businesses that have generated no revenue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They didn't go bankrupt. They just did nothing because <laughs> there was no revenue and no expense. <laughs> okay. Let's not delve too far into economic <laughs> terms. So you have eight units, seven of which you're renting out. What is your biggest hurdle with all of this? Um, you mentioned that you had a murder in one of your units, somebody was living in the crawl space. Is that not, that's not a legal unit. That's just somebody yeah. living in some little like. Some, someone, yeah, broke into the crawl space and was apparently living there for a couple months before I owned the property. Not while I, not while I owned it. So I just put a lock on that. But you know, when you say the biggest hurdle, you know, my biggest hurdle is I have a, a set of inherited tenants that 
are a little bit of a pain right now. And it's not that big of a hurdle. It's like maybe I get a phone call once every couple months about some sort of misbehavior from them. You know, they oh, park their car a- on the front lawn, <laughs> which drives me nuts. There's a, there's like so many parking spots in front of the house. It's like perfectly legal street parking. It's completely empty. And there's their car, not only parked on the front lawn, but parked in front of another tenant's door. Oh. It's like, there's, and there's like, it's and also in addition to the fact that there's just, there's perfectly legal street parking right in front of like six feet away from where they parked their car with nobody in it. There's also reserved parking in a little section with concrete that they could park on and they don't park there. So I'm just like, I'm just like, what is going on? They had, they had a bond. There's just a bunch, a bunch of little things that drive me nuts, but, uh, that's my biggest hurdle. It's not really a big hurdle. No, that's not, that's pretty, that's pretty easy. And the reason for that is because I come into this with a strong financial position. I self-educated a lot. So I've learned from other investors mistakes, which I think have allowed me to avoid making some mistakes of my own. And then I like to think of myself as a pretty reasonable guy. You know, if someone's having a problem or something like that, I'm going to see, I'm going to try to work out out a solution for them rather than, you know, strictly enforce my lease on, on certain terms, you know, like, Hey, like, for example, I have a problem with the trash at the property and one of the tenants was having a little trouble paying the rent. He's never been late, but he's like, Hey, what can I do to get a break? I was like, well, Hey, if you can get rid of all the trash for me at the property, well, in the time in, in between now and when I get the garbage bins from the city, I'll pay you. I think it was like 25 bucks a week. And he was like, great. Yes, I'll do that. And I, nice. I don't have to go there and pick up trash for my property now, <laughs> which doesn't nice. sound very appealing to me on a Tuesday afternoon. No, that's uh, not and he gets a little break on rent, like about a hundred bucks. And it's helping me solve a temporary problem. It's like that kind of stuff. If I can just be reasonable with certain things and work with people, I'm able to avoid problems. My real estate business should provide me with passive income so I can put my best energies into my job here at Bigger Pockets and producing content on financial freedom. <laughs> so what is next for you? Are you looking for more real estate? Are you looking to branch out in your real estate investing? You mentioned passive multiple times. I have become, uh, since I can't find any deals, I have become a private lender and I am uh, the money side. I'm the bank for other investors. Are you, do you have any interest in something like that or do you have any other ideas? Well, well, before I, I, I do want to talk about that, but before I get to that, I would like to point out something that has been underlying all of this that hasn't been brought up yet, which is my income, my earned income. Oh, right? see, okay. So I'm going to say right here, I actually work with you and you're not supposed to talk with your, with your coworkers about income. So I didn't want to talk about that. Well, I, I, won't, I won't talk specifically about it, but I'll talk okay. generally about it. Cause I've said this before publicly, you know, on this kind of stuff. I, when I started, I was making 48 K a year and I lost some of the income potential I could have had with a, with an impending promotion at my first job to join bigger pockets, which at the time was a startup, right? Right. But because I had saved up all this money, I just come off my second ESPP and had, had, had been lumping up some extra cash. You know, I coming into this new job with about 18, 15 to 18 grand, which is enough for me to feel very confident about going into a job that was less certain. It was instead of a fortune 500 company going to a two person startup was a big difference. <laughs> I, I perceived opportunity at Bigger Pockets and I loved the prospect of working here. Right. And that decision did not pay off at first, but it paid off big time over the course of the, you know, the first three months. My, it paid off immediately because I enjoyed my work and loved my life and was proud of what I was doing. But financially speaking, it didn't pay off for the first six months or so. And then after that, 
it really began to because I was I was in charge of sales for advertising. And because I was in charge of sales for advertising, I was able to earn commissions and grow the advertising sales of the, of the company. And I was able to do that. I'll, I'll briefly outline how I did that in three quick steps. So first, we increased our audience. More audience means you can sell more advertising, right? Mm-hmm. Second, I was able to take teach advertisers how to put together more effective ads. So at first they were not really good at advertising, but I learned my audience and I studied what was happening. I was able to get them really effective ads. So when you read the newsletter or listen to the podcast, you know, these are ads that we've designed that are useful to the audience and designed to help produce a good return for our advertisers and hopefully hook, hook up the users and listeners with good products. And then the other thing I was able to do is increase the amount of inventory that we had so that bigger pockets was able to sell more advertising. And so because of those things, I was able to increase my income and all, and that is what has helped me accelerate towards owning these current real estate invest investments and having a lot of liquidity to make future investments at the present time. Were Does that you, make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Were you asked to do this or did you ask to do this? Well, that's the beauty of joining a small company and startup is more risk more opportunity, right? And so that was that was something that I I weighed and I was able to take advantage of that. And that's may not and hey, you know, when you save you start out saving money, it's a guarantee. You don't spend ten dollars at a beer at the ballpark, you guarantee yourself to be ten dollars richer. When it comes to earning more income, it's hard work. You're gonna have to work harder and longer and smarter than you're used to, but you have the potential for to to earn more. And a cost of that is going to be the stability of a, of a high base pay at a, at a low, you know, a st- very stable company. I think it's important to point out that you were what, 23, 24, when you started with bigger pockets. So, yep. and you're not married, you don't have any children. So you've got nothing holding you back. You're not, nobody's dependent on you. It's, it's, you don't have this huge mortgage payment because you're currently renting. That's the time to take the risk. Yes. It's, yes. It's That's a, a lot that- it's a lot easier. Like what could you could have worked at McDonald's and paid all your bills while you were looking for another analyst job when bigger pockets didn't work out. Absolutely. And that's that's exactly exactly right. And the, the reason for that is I had accumulated a lot of cash and felt like I could last a very long time, even if the things didn't work out. And of course I got to bigger pockets and I quickly learned that we were in great financial shape and the business is booming and we ended up hiring a lot more people and, and going off to the races, which certainly was a big boost to my career. But the point is that is something that people ignore because it's really difficult for a median income earner to earn significantly more money within just a few years unless they change and go into a job that is more, less certain. And the way you can kind of get yourself convinced to do that is if you have this stockpile of cash relative to your expenses. So for example, if you're married with kids and you spend 60K a year, you know, Unlike me with 18 to 20 K, you'd probably need 60 or $70,000 to feel comfortable with a similar decision. Right. Right. That's a good point. So with great risk comes great reward. Mm. But I just want to throw that in there because that is what I'm really working on with my best efforts throughout this entire time period where I go from accumulating my first house hack to my third one is they're really going to, how do I produce great results that are scalable for my company that I work for and love and for myself? So what are you doing now? What's next on the horizon for you investment-wise? So investment-wise, I plan to continue to create and buy assets. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to continue to to save aggressively. I still spend very little. I'm a little bit more willing to go out for wings and stuff on Friday night now. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to continue to to save pretty much exactly what I've always saved, you know, spend exactly what I've always spent and 
you know, earn a good income and then plow that money into one real estate investment every 12 to 18 months here in Denver. Although I might do that a little sooner. I'm thinking about buying a triplex or quad in a nice neighborhood. That's a little closer to work and more convenient uh, in the next six to eight months here. So that may happen. And then if I have excess cash after that, I'll con- I continue to hope to buy one property every 12 to 18 months in Denver, but I may also buy properties out of market. You know, if I can, if I continue to, if I'm able to execute my Denver plan, kind of dollar cost averaging here in Denver, then I might, I might try my hand at some alternative investments elsewhere or like pr- lending private money or whatever is opportunistically a good, a good bet for me at that time. Okay. When you say out of market, do you mean out of the Denver market or off market, not found on the MLS? Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is gets into the, my, my real estate investing philosophy, but, uh, when I say out of market, I mean somewhere that's not Denver. Okay. My core principle, my core philosophy, what I've started with, what I'm trying to sustain is regular periodic investments in a Denver market in state and properties that I can stabilize and manage myself because I believe long-term in this market, but I also don't want to overextend in this market. So if I have extra cash beyond what I was expecting, I'm going to put that somewhere else and begin to diversify. Okay. Ooh, diversify. That's a really good word. A couple of seconds ago, you said dollar cost averaging. What does that mean for people who aren't familiar with that term? Sure. So so dollar cost averaging, most people when they go to invest are not like, oh, I'm going to, I have a hundred grand sitting around in the bank and I'm not sure what to do with it. I'm going to (laughs) dump it into the stock market right? Instead, what most people do is they're like, oh, I'm saving 500 to a thousand dollars a month. I'm going to put that into the stock market and invest it. So if you're doing that, that's called, you know, you're really dollar cost averaging. You're buying a bit of stock, small amounts consistently over a period of time. And what that does for you is it, it ensures that you're more likely to get the average return of whatever you're investing in. Right. So you're not going to invest all your money at the top. You're not going to invest all your money at the bottom. You're going to invest some when the price is high, some when the price is low, and you're going to get close to the growth rate of whatever you're investing is in over time. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. And so I'm trying to just repeat that formula with real estate investing. And what's kind of great about it, especially if you're a house hacker, is you can kind of leapfrog. So, like, you know, I've been house hacking for a while, which allowed me to be put down very little amounts of money for my down payments and stockpile a lot of cash. So I was able to put down a lot of cash on this last property. But in my next property, I can house hack again and put down a very small amount of cash so that next year I'll have even more to put down for a bigger property. Uh, that is not a house hack. Does that make sense? Uh, so it's kind of. Yes. Yeah, so what size property are you looking at? You bought a duplex, a duplex, a fourplex. Are you going bigger? So I think it's probably still going to be a residential, which would be a three to four, you know, in my case, a triplex or quadplex, but I'm going to buy in a nicer area and a place that generates more cash flow. When I say size, I'm, I referring to the amount of income I can generate relative to my investment or the quality of the property I can get relative to my investment. So, you know, it's the different, the difference between a 300,000 or $400,000 quadplex and an $800,000 quadplex may not be very significant. Like the structure may be the same, but the location and the income they generate as a result may be very different. So I'm looking probably in that four to six or $700,000 range for my next investment that I'm going to house hack. So bigger house hack. And then I'll, you know, I'll probably look for a similar sized investment to try to put down 25%, maybe on my own, maybe with a partner in two years. Nice. So. Okay. Well, this has been very informative, Scott. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day. This is your job. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm very lucky to, to get to do this for a living. So. Yes. 
Okay, it is time for the new Famous Four. Are you ready, Scott? I'm ready. What is your favorite finance book? My favorite finance book. Hmm. My favorite finance book is The Millionaire Next Door. Oh, and such a good the, book. One of the things, you know, that was really, it was really disappointing because I believe the author died. I think he was killed by a drunk driver just yeah. a couple of years ago. And I was like, I always really wanted to meet him because what he did is he did the data behind all of this. You know, I, he went and interviewed millionaires, dozens of them, maybe hundreds of them. He conducted studies. He has, this is, he gives you the data behind exactly what America's millionaires have did back in, what is that? I think it was written in like seventies or eighties, mm-hmm. the nineties. But he, he went and found out what they did, who they were, how they lived and what we kind of understand today. But he was the pioneer in that field. And it's just a really fascinating look at what, what these folks do. You know, two thirds of them are, are, are business owners, right? They're, are self-employed, right? They yeah. earn high incomes. They live in, in expensive houses, but they don't live expensive lifestyles. They live in nice neighborhoods, but not in new houses, right? You know, you talk about how they pass wealth onto the next generation and what their outlook is, what the effects of all that stuff is. It's just a fascinating data-driven book into who the millionaires are. And the sequel, The Millionaire Mind, is also a pretty good one. Yeah. I have not read Millionaire Mind, but The Millionaire Next Door is a must. If you don't have a book to read right now, pick up a copy of The Millionaire Next Door. Do you remember what the number one car is for millionaires? The number Uh, one vehicle that millionaires drive? A Ford F-150 pickup truck. Really? Mm -hmm. Nice. Oh, maybe it's a Ford F-250. No, probably not a new one. Uh, Eight years old, I think, was the average. Oh, wow. Yeah. Speaking of cars, what was your biggest money mistake? Yeah. So the, yeah, that was probably, well, so I have, I have two money mistakes that I w- want to talk about. One is I get a little tunnel vision sometimes and I dismiss the idea of travel hacking and credit, you know, credit card hacking and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And so I just recently dived into this world. It's like, while you're spending your normal amount of dollars, if you're just a type of person like me, who's going to spend money on a credit card and then pay off the balance in full every month and be very responsible and track your finances, you can sign up for these credit cards and you know you get to the two thousand or three thousand dollars spending limit in the first couple of months. So you do it when you have a expense come up, like your car insurance or whatever, and you hit the spending limit. You get like fifty thousand miles for or points that you can use for for travel miles. And so I just did this with my first ever credit card. I got the fifty thousand miles, and it's like, why was I do this before? That's like six hundred dollars in free travel. I got friends all over the country that are getting married over the next year. I need the travel points. <laughs> I'm going to continue doing this in the future. So I don't know why I dismissed that. I just thought, oh, I'm going to use one credit card and do that. But that was a mistake. And then the other one was the car. I should have probably, you know, Mr. Money Mustache has a great article on cars where he talks about cars as in terms of inventory. And it's like, you know, Bigger Pockets is a business. We have books that we sell. We would not go out and print off 20 years of books. No. <laughs> that would be a, bad a warehouse. Idea. That would be a ridiculous investment. It would be. It would have way too much inventory. You know, you 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 buy as much inventory as you need to sustain your operating needs for a reasonable number of amount of time and go from there. Well, my Toyota Corolla is, you know, a really a, a good, stable, long-lasting car. It's going to last probably twenty years. So I just bought twenty years of car inventory with my Corolla. And again, this this article, I forget which one it is, is but but it's by Mister My Mustache. So crediting him with the site with this concept, you know, he. You know, if you buy an older car, 10, 15 years old, you're still going to have five to 10 years of inventory in that car, which is plenty. So don't buy as much inventory as I did in your vehicle. 
buy something that meets your needs more realistically and is better, you know, allow you to deploy that cash that you had invested in that in something that can produce more investments. I could have invested the difference between the 17 grand I paid for my car and the six grand I might've paid for a 10 year older model. So I want to illustrate this in a slightly different way. I totally agree with that. The two cars that I have, right? Well, I have three cars right now. Two of them I bought brand new and they're the only two cars I've ever purchased brand new. And this was before I had discovered this whole financial independence thing. But we had a friend who had a 1991 Acura Integra, just like a plain old seats for people, hatchback, whatever car. And he was getting rid of it because he wanted to buy a new car. We said, well, how much do you want for it? He said, $2,500. Great. Sold. I know this guy. I know he takes meticulous care of his car. Uh, people are always complaining, oh, I don't want to buy somebody else's problems. I'm never going to get a used car. You're not necessarily buying somebody else's problems. If you know the person or if you can have it checked out by somebody, you can get a good quality vehicle for a whole lot less money. $2,500. I drove it for 100,000 miles and then sold it for $1,500 when I was done. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Yeah. And I think it comes down to self-education there. You, you did your homework. You do the guy, you know, you do the car, right? Yeah. And it was a great little car. I mean, it had some problems, but Acura makes a good car. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. And if you're, but if you're willing to self-educate, you know, you can, you can go through these things with much less risk. You know, if you don't know anything about cars and you're just going to buy something off Craigslist without ever meeting a guy, you know, you put yourself at risk unnecessarily. Yes. If you're able to do your homework and inspect it and have this insight, you could do really well. And that's the way that I would go in the future. In 20 years, when I buy my next car, I'm going to do exactly what you do. <laughs> in 20 years. In 20 years, all the cars will drive themselves. Yeah, that's probably true also. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Get to a 50% savings rate. Whatever you got to do, spend a year to however long you need to, to get to a 50% savings rate. If you get to a 50% savings rate, everything starts to fall into place really quickly. You're going to accumulate by definition and 50% of your after-tax take-home pay. So if you can, if you can achieve that, you're going to start to see, again, advantages piling up. You're going to, your credit score is going to improve. If you're paying any attention at all to your debts. You're going to, you know, have the flexibility to leave your job for a year or more. You're going to have to start a business, to travel the world, to do whatever you want. You know, just the ties that are holding you in place in life will begin to melt away. That's good advice. What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? All right. I can't, I can't remember. I've this told is a lot your of question. Jokes. This I've is your question. I've told a lot question. of jokes. I'm trying to come up with one that I haven't uh, <laughs> told already. So here, I'm wearing one right now. Whoa. Well, oh, move really the microphone. Joke, the microphone's sh- in the way. <laughs> <laughs> so my shirt says, my shirt has a picture of a uh, rock saying to a ruler, you rule. And the ruler saying to the rock, you rock. So I like that one. That's kind of, I like putting t-shirts. Now, what happened when the blue ship collided with the red ship? I don't know. Both of the crews were marooned. Ugh. Okay, so we <laughs> sat around talking about uh, when Scott and I were getting the concept for this podcast, and we wanted to do the the famous four. This is the new famous four, and this was Scott's joke. What is your favorite joke to? Or this is Scott's question. What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? Scott is the king of bad dad jokes. I think that's a What's the opposite of oxymoron? Double statement. Yep. That's a, that's I'm, a double. I, I'm the king of good dad jokes. No, you're not. There's no such thing as a good dad joke. You're the king of bad dad jokes. A pirate walks into a bar. Oh God. And he's got a, a, a roll of paper towels in his head and he says to the bartender, yeah, I've got a bounty on me head. Ugh, I quit you. I'm going to turn this <laughs> off. <All right. laughs> 
<laughs> okay, Scott, where can people find more out about you? I'm on Bigger Pockets. Just look me up on Bigger Pockets. I'm pretty responsive if you message me or PM me there. So I like to talk to people. If you're in Denver, I'll probably ask you to meet me for coffee one morning before work because I like to meet as many people as possible and just make sure I'm absorbing perspectives so that I can be helpful to as many people as possible and adjust what I the, my approach accordingly when I get new information and perspectives. So Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. You don't do anything, right? <laughs> Uh, nope. <laughs> to talk to us and share with us your views on life and finances. Okay, Scott, I'm going to get out of here. Thank you very much. And I will talk to you soon. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks for having Bye. me on as your guest. <laughs> so huge thanks to our guest, Scott Trench, the director of operations and author of Set for Life, Dominate Life, Money, and the American Dream, available at biggerpockets.com and wherever good books are sold. For the Bigger Pockets Money Show, episode two, this is Mindy Jensen, over and out. Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions.